Hello, I'm Caitlin DeAngelis, and this is Wargraves Gardeners, a podcast about the staff of the Imperial Wargraves Commission in the Second World War. Today's episode is about Charles Henry Holton, the first Wargraves Gardener to die in German custody. I saw a photograph of Charles Henry Holton, I was really struck by his face. He had a very sweet face, dark eyes, dark hair, and in the picture, in his personnel file, he looks very hesitant, maybe a little startled, and it made me wonder about what happened to him. Charlie Holton was from Gawcut, a village in Buckinghamshire. He was a farm laborer, just like his father. He he wasn't a trained gardener. And he was the youngest child in the family. He had a sister, Annie, who was 12 or 13 years older, and then a brother, Joseph, who was two or three years older. When the First World War started, Charlie was 18, and both brothers joined up. Joseph survived, but he was substantially disabled, and he could never work again. He lived with Annie for many decades before eventually moving to a care home. Charlie served with the Royal Engineers as a sapper. He worked for the Railway Operating Division, so running trains that brought supplies and men to the front. And while he was serving in France, he met a local woman from the Somme named Maria Sauti. She was from Beaumets. The gardeners had many reasons for joining the Wargraves Commission. They wanted to take care of their dead comrades. They couldn't get jobs back home in England. But one of the reasons that a lot of them cite for staying is because they had French partners. And that was the case with Charlie Holton and Maria. She was a little older than he was, and she was from a local family of farm laborers and shoemakers. So very humble professions, not wealthy at all. And Maria was one of at least nine children, so a big family too. And she and Charlie also had a large family. Their first children were twins who were born on Christmas Day, 1920, and they named them Noel and Noella because they were born on Christmas Day. Eventually, there were six Holton children. Now, when I was researching the Imperial Wargraves Commission, I didn't expect to read as much as I ended up reading about maternity care. This was a really big issue for the Wargraves gardeners in the 1920s and 1930s. They were young men married to French women, and they were having lots of children in that period. And so there were a few issues. First was just the issue of citizenship. The rules were different in France and in Belgium. In France, a child born to a British father had sort of a dual citizenship, but it was fairly ambiguous. In reality... Both the French and the British kind of treated those children as strangers. In Belgium, it was very different. The laws in Belgium were that if you were a child born to a British father, you automatically acquired British citizenship. So some of the gardeners' wives who lived in France, when they were ready to give birth, traveled to Belgium so that the children would be born with a clear-cut British nationality. 
this issue of nationality was also really significant to the births themselves. Both the UK and France were experimenting with national insurance schemes at the time. And in France, women were able to get free prenatal care and postpartum care following a birth. But since the gardeners and their wives were British, and if you were married before 1927, the women became British when they married British men, they weren't eligible for that program. And they also weren't eligible for the UK national insurance because they didn't live in the UK. So they didn't have access to that. And they also didn't have access to the UK district nurses, which were a big part of medical care for working people in the UK at the time. So they were sort of caught not being really French. They couldn't access the French program and not being in the UK, they didn't get those benefits either. And so medical care, especially birth care, was a big problem for the gardeners and their families in the 1920s. And in 1929, the gardeners elected some representatives to bring some of their concerns to the commission. And that was one of the concerns that they had, was about midwives. They wanted the commission to hire, quote, a good British midwife to attend their wives during and after births. Part of that was also, they complained that local doctors in Belgium and France expected fathers to be in the birthing room with their wives, and they were not pleased about that. So they wanted a good British midwife who would meet their expectations and also help their families because medical care was expensive, and they asked the commission for help. And the commission did listen. In 1930, so right after these complaints, they hired a doctor, Dr. Muriel Rippon, and also a nursing sister named Betty Stewart. So that was the start of the Imperial War Graves Commission's all-female medical staff. And actually, when Dr. Rippon left the commission, they hired another female doctor, Dr. Nan Roberts. So they always hired women into these medical positions, in part because they were responding to this plea from the gardeners for midwifery and postpartum care. Now, the medical staff didn't just handle births. They handled all sorts of medical care. And in December 1930, one of their calls was to the Holton household. The youngest child, Charles Jr., who was three years old, had had a terrible accident. It seems that he might have fallen into a fire or against a stove. He had terrible burns on his face, his arms, his legs. And nursing sister Stuart visited every day for a couple of weeks, and it seemed like maybe he was getting better, but in the end, he died in the last days of 1930. When baby Charles died, the the Holton family had recently moved to Ebutern, which is a village just on the northern edge of the Somme battlefields. It's immediately north of Beaumont Hamill. Charlie Holton, the father, was taking care of cemeteries in that area. So, Gomcourt Cemetery, Owl Trench, possibly helping out with some of the larger cemeteries like Sayre Road Number 1 and Number 2, which are partially in Hebutern. And he was still there in May 1940 when the Germans invaded. At the time of the invasion, the Holton family consisted of Charlie and Maria, the twins, Noel and Noella, who were 19, Nora, who was 18, George had just turned 17, Joseph was eight, and Ghislaine, Noella's daughter, who was two. 
So it was a fairly large, multi-generational family. And it's really important when we're thinking about the evacuation to think about what a household looked like. Because when it came time to run away from the invasion, families like the Holtons were at extra risk of being left behind. They were a large family with young children living in a rural area. They didn't have a car. Very few of the gardeners had cars. They were generally not paid well enough for that. But they did have bikes, which they used to get to work. And that works fine if it's just adults and if you have enough bicycles for the adults. But if you have a large family or if you have young children in the family, it becomes very difficult to evacuate on a bicycle. And so families like the Holtons that did have little children or anyone who had someone who was elderly or disabled, those were the people who tended to get left behind. And you actually see in some of the commission files later when men who were interned are filing complaints that some of them talk about how they had disabilities from the First World War that made it difficult for them to get away on bicycles. The Imperial War Graves Commission did own automobiles and motorcycles in France. But what happened during the evacuation is that the officers and the office staff who were in charge of those vehicles generally used them to evacuate themselves and their own families. They didn't really go out into the countryside to check on families like the Holtons. The Holton family was under the jurisdiction of the office in Albert. And what happened there was the officers and the clerical staff took all the cars and they all escaped. But the gardeners who were living in the rural hinterlands, many of them did not, including the Holtons. So now imagine the invasion of France has happened. The Dunkirk evacuation has happened. It's June 1940. And Ebutern is actually a pretty interesting place. It's a very small village, just a few hundred people. But in June and July 1940, it became a hub of some of the very earliest evasion networks in occupied France. There were tens of thousands of British soldiers left behind after the Dunkirk evacuation, and also many French soldiers who had been captured. And since the Germans were as surprised as anyone that the invasion had gone their way so quickly, they were not really prepared to deal with that many prisoners. And so many prisoners were kept in temporary stockades while the Germans were building camps in Germany. And one of these stockades was in Doulon, where a group of French civilians, many of them with British ties, focused a lot of their efforts on helping people escape. One of the people involved with this group was a woman named Eliane Miplaw, who lived in Ebutern. And beginning in June 1940, she was hiding four British soldiers in her house. They were there from June until August 1940. And these were probably people who had been broken out of the stockade in Doulon because she was working with a doctor who would go in and do inspections on the prisoners, and he was able to smuggle a few people out. Eliane Laplat is a really interesting person, and um, I don't know if I could do a whole episode on her because she was not in the War Graves Commission, but like many of the people who did evasion work in this area, she did have some British connections. She had two older sisters who had uh, emigrated to the UK years and years ago, and they sometimes sent their children back to France for periods of time. So Eliane had 
British nieces and nephews. And actually, at the beginning of the war, one of the sisters who had emigrated to the UK was back in France living with Eliana. So she had some British connections. It's not clear whether the gardeners in Ebutern knew about Madame Maplot and her evaders. I suspect that they probably did, but I don't have a a document that's a smoking gun that says for sure that they did. It was really very dangerous to write that sort of thing down. And in fact, Eliane Mipla was arrested by the Nazis several times. She pretended to be insane so that they would commit her to an asylum rather than sending her to a concentration camp. I do know, 100% certain, that the gardeners in Habitern did know about one evader, uh, a guy named George Hignett, And the reason that they knew about George Hignett was he was actually a Wargraves gardener himself. He worked in Longueval. He wasn't one of the earliest generation of gardeners. He wasn't a First World War veteran. In 1936, the commission hired nine new gardeners who were younger reservists because they knew that, you know, the gardeners were getting older. They would need new young men. So they hired these nine guys, including George Hignett, who was a reservist with the Gordon Highlanders. And he was captured at St. Valery with the 51st Highland Division. After he was captured, he was marching in the prisoner of war column. You know, they marched all the way from St. Valery to Germany. And when they were passing near Arras, he, he sort of took his chance. And he and a friend jumped out of the line and hid in a culvert until everyone passed. And then they went back to Longueval to get food and clothing and money and help. They stayed in Longueval for a little while, but then they went to Hebutern. And there is a record of George Hignett staying in Hebutern in the gardening log of one of the gardeners. One of the three main protagonists of my book is Ben Leach, who was a gardener in Beaumont Hamel. And he kept a daily record of his gardening work. And on July 10th, 1940, so almost a month after the 51st Highland Division was captured, he writes in his gardening log, Ginger Hignett at Hebutern. So we can see George Hignett traveling to towns where he still has Imperial Wargrave's Commission colleagues and probably getting help from them. And actually, in the gardening log, you can see several places where Ben Leach does help other evaders. He's usually fixing their bicycles or giving them directions, but there are several people that he helps in in July 1940. So that's July 10th, 1940. A significant date, that's when the French government is turned over to the Vichy regime. On July 15th, just five days later, the German military police, the Feldgendarmes, show up in Hebutern in force. This was part of a roundup of all of the British men and older boys who lived in the Nord and Pas de Calais departments. They had started on July 13th in Arras, arresting many of the men there, including many Wargrave staff, then widened out to other towns on July 14th, and they finally reached Hebutern on July 15th. And that's actually where they stopped. Habitaren is at the southernmost edge of the Pas de Calais department. So if you go just a few steps farther south into Beaumont Hamel, then you're in the Somme department, which administratively was a different area under the Nazi occupation. So the gardeners in Beaumont Hamel, including Ben Leach, were not arrested in those July arrests. When they were arrested, gardeners in the Somme were usually sent to Saint-Denis, 
just like Frederick Martin, who we covered in a previous episode. By the time the Germans showed up in Hebutern, George Hignett seems to have gotten away. He was not arrested. He made it south to Marseille and over the Pyrenees and back to the UK and rejoined his unit, and he was part of the invasion force in June 1944. The four evaders at Elian Miplot's house were also safe. The Fell gendarmes had a list of all the people they were supposed to arrest, so they weren't going house to house searching for people. They were just going down the list and arresting British civilians who were on the list. And those lists had been provided by the civil authorities in Nord and Pas-de-Calais departments. So in Hebutan, they arrested the three Wargraves gardeners living there, Charlie Holton, John Hamilton, and the head gardener, Albert Haynes, as well as Noel Holton, Charlie's oldest son, who was 19. Now, they didn't arrest George Holton, who was 17. It's not exactly clear why. They had instructions to arrest every British man and boy over the age of 16, but in practice, it was actually fuzzier than that. Sometimes younger children were arrested, or older children weren't arrested, or, like in the case of the Holtons, one was and one wasn't. Some of those teenage sons of gardeners were interned for the entire war. Others were paroled pretty quickly, and some were arrested and interned and paroled and then arrested again and interned again over and over. And that's actually what happened to Noel and George Holden. Noel was released within a few months after this first arrest, but then both boys were arrested again and interned in 1942. Maria and Noella Holton were also arrested later and interned, though it's not exactly clear how long they were held for. But they weren't arrested in this first stage in July 1940. Only Charlie and Noel were taken away at first. There's a fantastic book about this series of arrests written by a local historian in Arras named Frederick Turner. Frederick Turner's grandfather was one of these British soldiers who stayed in France after the First World War, married, had a family. He didn't work for the Wargraves Commission, but he lived in the Arras area. And so he and his two sons, Frederick Turner's father and uncle, all three of them were arrested in July 1940. What Frederick has done is he's compiled over a thousand little biographical entries, one for each prisoner who was arrested in this roundup and held in the same internment camp with the majority of the Wargraves gardeners. So each entry has their name, their date of arrest, their prison number, that sort of information. And it's an amazing resource for anyone looking into British internees in France in the Second World War. The book is called Les Oublis, The Forgotten of the Second World War. And the subtitle is British internees at Tost, Kreuzberg, Giromagie, so the, the names of the camps where these men were kept. It isn't really easy to find because it's privately printed, so you can't just go to a major book retailer online and order it. But if you're listening to this podcast, chances are that you might be the sort of person who occasionally finds themselves in Arras, and if you do, they usually have a few copies of Frederick's book at the Carrier Wellington gift shop, so you can pick up a copy there. What Frederick did when he was compiling his book was go around and interview a lot of the surviving children who still live in France. 
So along with the biographical entries, a few of them include more material, like short memories or photographs from the camps or photos of artifacts that the families still have in their possession. Frederick's a friend of mine. We've shared research back and forth, and he was able to put me in touch with the Holton grandchildren. So I was able to share with them everything that I had, copies of Charlie Holton's records from the Wargraves archives and all that. So now we all have all the information. But one of the stories that's in Frederick's book is about Noella Holton on July 15th, 1940, the day her father and her twin were arrested. After the arrests, the men were put into a truck and driven north to Arras, and Noella got on her bike and followed them. It's about 14 or 15 miles from Ebutern to Arras, and on a bike in the middle of the summer in that open farmland, it's a long, hot ride, but Noella was determined to see what happened to her father and her brother. She followed the truck all the way to the Arras train station. And remember here that the Aris train station had been bombed on May 19th. The Wargraves office, which is in that same plaza, was also bombed. All the windows were blown out and the furniture was shattered and blown against the walls. In July 1940, there was still rubble from that bombing. They were still recovering human remains from the rubble at the train station until the last week of July. So on July 15th, even though the attack had happened a couple of months before, they were still very much in the aftermath of that bombing. Noella sees the trucks gathering people, her father, her brother, the other British men who have been arrested, and she sees them being loaded into cattle cars at the train station. Not passenger cars, they used cattle cars to transport them. And Noella said that she remembered the German soldiers being pretty rough with the internees, hitting them with rifle butts, shouting, loading them into these cattle cars. The train leaves. It goes north to Lille, where British prisoners from all over northern France are being gathered in an old French military barracks. There are about 600 to 650 prisoners by the end of July, and about 100 of them are Wargrave staff and their sons. After a week or two in Lille, they're sent north into Belgium. They make a few brief stops, but they end up in Huy, where they're imprisoned in the Citadel, which is a big Napoleonic fortress on a hill overlooking the city. In the testimony from the Wargraves internees, nearly all of them say that Huy was the worst place that they were kept during their four years of internment. Most of that was down to the fact that the facility was not prepared to take care of them. The Germans were overwhelmed with the number of prisoners they had taken. And even though they had ordered the arrest of these British civilians, they weren't prepared to take care of them. So when the gardeners arrived at Hui, they found that there was no bedding, there was no food, there were no preparations really made for them. And within a couple of weeks, the prisoners at Hui are actually really starving. They search the little exercise yard for weeds or leaves that they can eat. They find potato peelings and boil them into this starchy water that um, they drink, hoping that it's nourishing, but it really just gives them all terrible diarrhea. And eventually the Germans let the prisoners deputize a couple of men to go down into the city 
with money that the prisoners had brought with them, so with their own money to buy food. And they're able to go and buy some things, but it's definitely not enough. The Belgian civilians that they encounter in the city are horrified, and they give these men anything that they can, although they're also living under the occupation, so they're dealing with their own problems and shortages. One of the Wargraves men who went out on one of these expeditions was a stone carver named Bernard Parsons. He kept a journal during his time at Hui. He tells a story about receiving a small pot of mustard from a Belgian civilian during this period when they were hungry. And it features prominently in a story that he tells in his journal. So this is August 20th, 1940. Bernard Parsons writes, I am very hungry. We've got to the stage where we are obsessed with thoughts of food. I waste nothing, and I even pick up plum stones and crack them to get a little nourishment contained in the nut. This evening, Covey, a commission man, called me on one side and told me he had seen a man steal some potatoes during the potato peeling parade and hide them in a stove. So we went to the stove, and there was still one left. This we cut in two, and having a good layer of mustard on it, ate it eagerly, quite raw. The man who helped him find this potato, Reginald Covey, was also a Wargraves gardener, and that was one of the ways that these internees cared for one another. When they saw someone particularly struggling, they would do what they could to either get him some food or some extra attention, or just have a companion at all times. And that became a pattern that became more and more necessary as time went on, as their internment dragged on, and as their mental health deteriorated. All the gardeners, including Charlie Holton, were losing tremendous amounts of weight at Hui. Some of them even say in their accounts that if they had stayed at Hui over the winter, they thought that they all would have died. But they didn't stay at Hui forever. They stayed for five weeks, and that was plenty. At this point in the journey, some of the teenage sons of gardeners were paroled and sent home, including Noel Holden. It's not exactly clear what the criteria were. There wasn't a bright line of an age cutoff because several boys younger than Noel were kept for the whole war, but Noel was one of the boys who was sent home. He didn't go on the next leg of the journey to the permanent camp, where most of the gardeners would spend the next three years. In early September, the gardeners were loaded into another train, passenger cars this time, and sent east in a journey of several days to Tost. Tost is a small town that at the time it was part of Germany, but today it's part of Poland. They were taken to a facility, an internment camp, that wasn't exactly what you might think of when you think of prisoners in the Second World War. This wasn't a big open field with single-story barracks in it. Instead, it was an old psychiatric hospital. It was a four-story brick building with a fifth-story attic and a couple of smaller administrative buildings in the yard. It had a walled yard with barbed wire strung along the top where the prisoners had their roll calls. And the hospital was completely empty. It was clearly a modern facility set up for hundreds of patients, but all of the patients were gone when the British internees arrived. It's not exactly clear what happened to them, though we can assume 
nothing good happened to them. Some of them may have been killed as part of the German genocide against disabled people that had been happening in Germany for several years. Or they may have been killed in some of the violence against disabled people after the invasion of Poland. The facility was very close to the border. When the Nazis invaded Poland, one of the things they did in the very first few months was go around to hospitals and murder disabled people. Sometimes by shooting them. Sometimes they had mobile gassing vans that they were experimenting with. Other patients were simply turned out of doors and told to fend for themselves. And in some cases, they were transferred to other hospitals where they mostly died of medical neglect. I don't know what happened to all of the patients at this particular psychiatric hospital in Toast, but I was able to trace one of the head doctors from the hospital. He was an enthusiastic Nazi who was later prosecuted for murdering hundreds of disabled children at another psychiatric hospital nearby. So we can assume that the patients at Tost, who were there before it was an internment camp for British civilians, probably met terrible ends. When Charlie Holton and the other gardeners arrived at Illegate Tost, they were not the first British prisoners there. There was a smaller group from the Netherlands that had arrived a few days before. So prisoners were given sequential prisoner numbers, and the group from the Netherlands got number 1 through 211, and Charlie Holton's group started at 212 and went up into the 800s. So there were about 650 of them. And Charlie Holton's number was 747. Conditions at Ilag 8 Tost were better than the conditions at Hui. There were bunks, there were rations, the food was terrible and inadequate. Cabbage soup, a little bit of bread with cooking grease on it, but they were getting actual rations. There's a prisoner named George Gregson, not a Wargraves person, but just another prisoner at Ilag 8, who kept a diary, and here's what he wrote about the food. He said, "'They give us enough to keep body and soul together.' But one would not be surprised if one's soul was filled with an irresistible impulse to seek a more congenial and more hospitable domicile at some time. The men were in a very weak state, especially after their time at Hui. Many of them say in their accounts that when they saw each other stripped to the waist to get vaccines or showering, they were all shocked to see the state that their colleagues were in, very thin, very weak. One gardener, Omer Briere from Cabaret Rouge says that he cried when he saw himself and his colleagues in the showers because they looked awful. Bernard Parsons in his journal writes, I said men, no, living skeletons, terrible to see. All tummies have disappeared and ribs are very much in prominence. One thing is certain, unless they skin us, we cannot now get any lighter in weight. So that's the state of things for Charlie Holton and the other gardeners in the autumn of 1940. They're going into the winter of 1940 to 1941 with no reserves. Some of them, who were assigned to bunks on the upper floors of the camp, had to be reassigned to lower floors because they were too weak to climb the stairs to their bunks. And you have to remember that these men are mostly in their 40s and 50s, some in their 60s. And many of them are partially disabled from their service in the First World War. So they're not physically fit like a lot of the younger POWs who were captured when they were serving in the military. 
In the fall of 1940, the prisoners at Tost were not yet receiving Red Cross food parcels. These are the famous parcels stuffed with canned goods, you know, high-protein, high-fat, powdered milk, that sort of thing, that saved the lives of so many POWs and internees during the war. But at this early stage, the Red Cross had not yet established a reliable supply route to Tost. Later, those parcels would be absolutely life-saving, but they just had not started arriving yet. They got their first shipment of parcels in January 1941, and then another shipment in March 1941. But it took almost a year for them to get them on a regular basis, and they certainly were not getting a parcel a week like they were supposed to be. Some of the men were also in their summer clothes. During the arrests, the Germans had sometimes allowed them to pack a bag of supplies, but sometimes they hadn't, and some of the men arrived without much in the way of baggage, just dressed in the summer clothing that they had been wearing when they were arrested in July. Again, the Red Cross would provide warmer clothing eventually, but not until the next winter. This first winter of 1940 to 1941, they were on their own. Charlie Holton was in the same boat as everyone else. He had lost weight, he was far from home, and he had an added worry, which was that he hadn't heard from his family since he left Hebutern. He had been writing to them, and some of the other men, by the time we get to November, December 1940, some of the other men were starting to get letters from home, but not Charlie Holton. He didn't know what happened to his family, if they were all right, and as the weeks went by, that started to weigh very heavily on him. Prisoners were allowed to write letters, usually two single-page letters a month, and then also a postcard on Sundays. These were heavily censored, but they were able to go over the same routes as prisoner of war mail, so it was possible to communicate with family in the UK. In October 1940, Charlie Holton wrote a postcard to his sister, Annie, back in Buckinghamshire. He wrote, Dear Annie and all, a card to let you know that I am in the best of health and hope you are all the same. You will see by my address I am interned somewhere in Germany. I have had no news from home for four months, so you can guess I feel a bit worried. If you know anyone who would like to send a small parcel to a lonely prisoner, give them my address. Please write soon. Charlie. Like a lot of letters from the internees, this one does try to assure loved ones that the writer is in good health, even if that may not really be true. Was Charlie Holton in good health in October? Probably not. None of them really were. But it's possible that he looked around at everyone else and didn't feel like he was in any worse shape than they were. He was one of the younger gardeners. He was 45. And looking at his medical records and his personnel file, it looks like he didn't really have any physical disabilities or chronic illnesses like a lot of the others had. It's a little bit of a mystery why he hadn't heard from his family in Hebutern. I don't know definitively the answer. It's possible that this may have been during the period when Maria and Noella were arrested. They did spend some time in an internment camp, though I'm not sure about the dates. It may also have just been mundane logistical problems. A letter goes astray, or it gets sent to one of the previous camps because someone used an out-of-date address, something like that. I mean, it took the Red Cross months to establish a reliable delivery route to Tost, so it may just have been that the letters were on their way, but they hadn't arrived yet. But then it was December, 
And then it was January, and Charlie still had not heard from his family. And it was starting to take a real toll on him. He wasn't the only one struggling mentally. The first Wargraves employee to attempt suicide at Tost was a guy from Arras named Wilfred Legg. In December 1940, while everyone else was at a Christmas concert, he stayed behind in the bunks and cut his throat with a razor. Luckily, his friends found him in time, and they were able to get him medical care, and he didn't die. But he also was not the last one to attempt suicide. So that's December 1940. They've only been at Illeg 8 in Tost for a few months, and already there is an extreme mental health crisis, which would continue. In fact, one of the Red Cross reports that was filed later on, they started inspecting the camp in 1942-1943, and they sent reports to the British government that had some pretty dire things to say about morale at Illeg 8, saying it was very low and that the prisoners were teetering on the edge of, quote, moral and physical disintegration. One of the things that really helped morale was getting mail from home. And when Annie, Charlie's sister, got his postcard with his new address at the camp, she packed a parcel and sent it to him. It was a really nice parcel. It had chocolate and socks and soap and a pipe. But Charlie sent that postcard on October 22nd, 1940. Annie received it on January 6th, so 12 weeks later. And she sent the parcel in January, but the mail was very slow. And by the time the parcel arrived at Toast, it was too late. Annie also did try to reach Maria Holton in Hebitern. There was, of course, no real civilian mail service between the UK and Nazi-occupied France, but there were a few ways to get messages through. There were a couple of authorized channels, and you could sometimes get a 25-word message through via the Red Cross. But all of those processes were very cumbersome, difficult to navigate, very slow. Another thing that made it difficult for Annie to contact Maria was that they didn't speak the same language. Annie's French was non-existent, and so was Maria's English. So Annie worried that even if she could get a letter through to France, Maria might not be able to read it. Annie wrote to the Imperial Wargraves Commission for help. She enclosed a letter that she had written for Maria, and she asked them whether they could help her send it, or, even if they couldn't send the letter, could they help her translate it into French? And they said no. They gave her information for how to contact the Red Cross, but they didn't translate her letter, so no help from the commission on that front. She was on her own. Meanwhile, Charlie Holton is really starting to go downhill physically as well as mentally. By February, it was clear to everyone that there was something really wrong. Everyone was suffering. They had only had one Red Cross parcel. They're all having digestive problems. It's really cold. But Charlie seems to be having more trouble than most. He's noticeably weaker. And by February, he's writing to Annie, telling her that he's ill. He sent her at least three postcards in February 1941. And they all say he was not well and he also had not heard from Maria and the children. The prisoners moved Charlie into the Revere, the sick bay, but even with medical care, he kept declining. So the Germans eventually sent him to a POW hospital in Langenbilau, which is about 100 miles away. 
And that was the last anyone from the Wargraves Commission ever saw Charlie Holden. He died in the POW hospital on April 24th, 1941. On Charlie Holton's death certificate, it says that he died of stomach cancer. That may be true, but we have to take it with a grain of salt. It is possible that Charlie did have stomach cancer, but stomach cancer tends to be a slow-spreading cancer that can go undetected for years and years before it causes any symptoms. It's possible that if the Germans performed an autopsy, they might have found cancer in his stomach, but that doesn't mean that it killed him. We have his medical records from his personnel file in the commission's archives, and so we can see that Charlie Holton didn't miss a single day of work for health reasons in the years before he was arrested. He had a minor hernia in 1937, but nothing after that. No stomach complaints, no flu, no nothing. He certainly could have had minor symptoms and just worked through them, but the point is that Charlie Holton was not noticeably sick when he was arrested. And then nine months later, he was dead. That's really fast. The symptoms for stomach cancer are really the same as what was happening to everyone at LAG-8. Weight loss, abdominal pain, digestive problems. It's quite possible that there was no autopsy and no cancer. They just found a diagnosis that matched the symptoms of what was happening to all the prisoners. So did Charlie Holton die of stomach cancer? He certainly could have. It's possible. But I feel pretty confident saying that even if he did die of stomach cancer, that his death was hastened by the conditions of his internment. I highly doubt he would have died in April 1941 if he were at home in Hebeteran. A little over a month after Charlie died, in late May 1941, Annie's parcel arrived at Illeg 8. So it took about five months to get there. That wasn't unusual for parcels. The men sometimes got their Christmas parcels in the spring. When the parcel arrived, it was received by Albert Haynes, the head gardener in Hebutern. He was Charlie Holton's supervisor, so he took it upon himself to write to Annie. He wrote, Dear Madam, Being a close friend of Mr. C.H. Holton and his foreman at work in pre-war days, I take this opportunity of writing to you to acknowledge receipt of clothing parcel you sent to Charlie some time ago, including safety razor, socks, pipe, chocolate, soap, etc. At the same time, it is with much regret and sadness that I am able to inform you that he passed away peacefully on April 23rd after a fairly long illness. The parcel has therefore been entrusted to me to be distributed amongst his friends, which I have done to the best of my ability." and I trust this will meet with your utmost approval. I'm in constant touch with his family and will do my best to help them in every way possible. My wife and family are living quite near to them and will be a comfort to them in their sad bereavement. Believe me, madam, yours very truly, A. Haynes. A few things about that letter. First, it leaves the impression that Haynes was with Charlie Holton when he died. He says he died peacefully. But in fact, Charlie was in a hospital 100 miles away, alone, while his friends were still at LLG-8. Second, Haynes says that he was in touch with Charlie's family in Hebutern. It's possible that was just a white lie to try and comfort Annie, but it's also possible that letters did start arriving after Charlie had been moved to the hospital or even after he died. 
Or perhaps Albert Haynes was just getting updates from his own wife, who also lived in Happy Terre. Annie was, of course, extremely upset to learn that Charlie was dead. She and her brother Joseph, who lived with her, were notified by the Wargraves Commission in a letter dated May 30th, 1941, so just a little over a month after he died. And in response to this letter, she wrote back. She says, It came as a great shock to my brother and myself that our brother was dead and buried. The last we received any news of him was on the 21st and 22nd of April, one letter and two postcards. In all three, he complained of not being at all well. He seemed very worried over his home and family. He had not heard anything of them since being interned. It seemed his one cry, where were they? I am very thankful that the card I received, written February 12, 1941, he had received some of our letters, as we have written regularly often since we heard from him first. My brother lives with me, being disabled from the last war and unable to work. We are the only two left of the family. We are not alone in our trouble, but it's terribly hard. If only we could have seen him once more. In her letter to the Wargraves Commission, Annie mentions Charlie's burial. At first, he was buried near the POW hospital. But after the war, his body was moved to Krakow, where he's buried with several of the other gardeners who died at Illagate. It's a little tricky saying exactly how many Wargraves people died during the Second World War. One option is to only count internees who died while they were interned. But there are also other people, people who died during the invasion, people who were repatriated and died soon after. There are also ex-employees and family members, wives and children who died. So the number really depends on who you count. There is a list in the Wargraves Commission archives of employees who were left behind who died. And that list is 14 people. I consider that the minimum number. My definitions tend to be a little bit more expansive. The Wargraves list only has current employees who either died during the invasion or as internees. But I tend to count more people. For example, I include ex-employees who worked for the Wargraves Commission for a substantial amount of time. There was a prisoner at Illag 8 named James Edwards, who was a Wargraves gardener, just like all the others. He started in 1922, and then he was a little older than most of them, so he retired in 1938, December 31st, 1938. So that was about 18 months before they were all arrested. He wasn't a current employee, so he's not accounted for in the commission's records, but he was someone who worked with those other gardeners for 16 years. He knew them, he lived near them, and they considered him part of their community. So I did too. He died at Illag 8 on July 5th, 1942, and he's buried right near Charlie Holton in Krakow. His gravestone doesn't have an IWGC crest, maybe because he didn't die during his employment but I do think we should count him. Another case is Percy Johnson, a gardener in Amentier. He was arrested along with his 20-year-old son, Percy Jr., and Percy Jr. died in 1941 of a disease that he contracted in the internment camp. 
Percy Sr. survived long enough to be repatriated. He was repatriated in September 1944, but he was very ill when he got back to the UK, and he died in January 1945, about four months later. He never returned to France. His wife and his daughter were still in France, and he never saw them again. So does he count? He's someone who died four months after he was repatriated, so not while he was in the internment camp. I tend to think that we should include them too. There are a lot more cases, and hopefully we'll get into some of those in future episodes. When we start talking about wives, children, and also French civilians who were temporary employees of the Workers' Commission, which is a whole other category that we haven't really gotten into yet, uh, the number of Wargraves community members who died during the war is starting to get up more like 25 or 30. And that's not counting the several sons of Wargraves gardeners who died while serving in the military. The Commonwealth Wargraves Commission maintains the role of civilian war dead from the Second World War, civilians who died in the Blitz, in bombings, in other enemy actions. And most of the gardeners who died in internment camps, so Charles Henry Holton, William Meller, Harold Stanley Hawkins, are already on those lists. But most of the people who died in other circumstances, like after they had been repatriated or the wives and children of gardeners, tend not to be on the role of civilian dead. Today, Charlie Holton has a slightly unusual headstone. It's similar to the white Wargraves headstones with the curved top, but it has the little notches out of the corners to indicate that he was a civilian. It's not one of the staff stones with the flat top, but it does have the IWGC crest on it, so you can tell that he was a Wargraves gardener. In 1954, the commission sent Maria Holton a picture of the temporary wooden cross that was on Charlie's grave before the current headstone was erected. And in a reply, the local officer says that at first she was very distressed, but was happy to know that his grave was in a British war cemetery. Maria and the children chose an epitaph that says, To to our dear husband and father, we'll never forget you. In French. There are a few other post war things in Charlie Holton's personnel file. In 1947, his son George applied for a job as a gardener. He had been interned in Belgium with Noel, but they both survived and they went home. And when George was about 24, he applied for a permanent job with the commission. His letters written in French which was a strike against him because the commission had a policy that all gardeners had to be fluent in English. The commission also noted that George's health was, quote, doubtful, and that they had hired him as a casual laborer for a little while and that they weren't very impressed with his work. An officer wrote on this application, it is appreciated that Holton's case is deserving of sympathy and every factor in his favor has been taken into consideration but then recommended not to hire him, which they didn't. If you're ever visiting the communal cemetery in Hebuterne, the Holton family has a pretty unusual plot. 
most of the cemetery is a big civilian section. And then there's a smaller war grave section near the front. But the Holton family isn't buried in either of those places. They have their own separate plot that's pretty removed from the other civilians. It's closer to the war grave section, but it's also a little separated from that. And buried there, you'll find uh, Reginald Covey. He's buried there. That's the gardener who shared the potato with Bernard Parsons and his wife. They're both buried there. He has a commissioned stone. And then also several of the Holton children. Noel Holton is buried there with his wife, and so is George, who never fully regained his health and died when he was about 40. There's also a tomb for one of the grandchildren who is still alive, but, you know, some people like to put up their tombstone while they're still alive, so it's there. And it was interesting to me that even in the third generation, members of this family are still planning to be buried separately from the rest of the town. They're French. They've lived all their lives in France, but there's still this distance. Noel and George were both interned as British men, even though they didn't speak fluent English, and that mattered to the Wargraves Commission after the war when George was applying for a job. So there's this in-betweenness that's really important for understanding the gardeners and their families' experiences. So if you're ever doing a battlefield tour and you're in the Ebuterran Beaumont Hamill area, stop by the civilian cemetery. Say hello to Reginald Covey and the Holtons. Or if you're in Krakow, make sure to look for the gardeners buried in the British War Cemetery there. They're a long way from home. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back next time to hear my interview with Marcel Haler, the son of a Wargraves gardener, who grew up in France in the 1920s and 30s and escaped in 1940. This episode was researched and written by me, Caitlin DeAngelis. Many thanks to Frederick Turner and to Virginia, Sebastian, and David Holton, as well as to Megan Kelleher, who sent photos of Charlie Holton's grave. Thanks to Fiona Hopkins for production and sound editing. Charles Henry Holton's personnel file can be found in the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission archives. With thanks to Michael Greet and Andrew Featherston. Music by Albert Baer and Upbeat.